The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Again, just a, a warm welcome to our little Zoom Sangha. And we'll do about half an hour of very lightly guided meditation. We'll be talking for the first seven to ten minutes or so, and then have a bit of a Dhamma reflection and discussion after that. So please find a comfortable posture however that looks for you, a balance of relaxation and alertness. And if you haven't already, probably have, um, turn off anything that might disturb you, cell phones, smartwatches, computer alerts, anything that might interrupt your meditation from the outside. Notice, notice the quality of attention or heart in your mind right now. What's it like to be aware in this moment? Noticing the details of your embodied presence. Perhaps any warmth or cool, tingling or vibration. Sense of light or darkness. Spaciousness or heaviness. Allowing these simple physical qualities to root the body in the present moment, in the heart and mind, in the body. Inviting, allowing, may this body relax. And inviting and allowing. May this heart and mind relax. Perhaps sweeping the attention through from the crown of the head down through the scalp, face, eyes, area behind the eyes, and inviting softening. Allowing the jaw, lips to soften. Even allowing the tongue to rest comfortably. Relaxing in the mouth. Perhaps with the tip of the tongue just behind the teeth. The upper palate. Inviting the teeth to stay gently open even as the lips are closed. Mm. Inviting the neck, shoulders, chest, and ribcage to soften. Perhaps allowing an out-breath. Knowing you're breathing out and allowing any excess tension. To release. 
Inviting the rib cage, the diaphragm, the whole core of the body to relax and soften. Perhaps casting the gaze inward and even inviting the viscera, the organs. To relax. Being with whatever is there, whether they do or not. Allowing the hips and buttocks to relax on the seat or cushion or chair. And feeling the support beneath you. Accepting that. You're allowing the thighs, calves, shins, all of the legs, inviting those to soften and inviting any excess tension to drain out the bottoms of your feet as the ankles, soles of the feet, tops of the feet, toes soften into the earth. Here, rooted in now, Allowing all of experience to flow through. If it's helpful, resting the attention in the felt sense of the body, perhaps breath or sensation, while opening to all that unfolds in the changing, inconstant flux of the mind. Are you aware? What's obvious? Nothing left out.
in the past few moments of this formal meditation, the invitation is to notice how the heart and mind are relating to experience in this moment. What's the relationship or attitude towards what is happening right now? Thank you all for your practice. If um, if you're open to it, I just invite you to spend a moment or two before we completely exit meditative space, sending a little pulse of good wishes, healing wishes, metta, to the other participants in this Zoom room, seen or unseen. And scroll through if you want, if you're on a phone or something. And as you send these good wishes, knowing that as you send them, you're receiving them from each of us. Thank you. Thank you for that little practice, too. This morning, I'd like to offer some reflections on wisdom and equanimity. And this picks up a little bit on a thread of our discussion the last time I was here, which included, among other things, equanimity regarding the sense spaces, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, sensing, and the mind. And it also is weaving it together with some reflections over the last couple of weeks that Liz Powell offered on the paramis. Wisdom and equanimity are also two of the paramis or perfected qualities of mind. They're also... Wisdom and equanimity, essential flavors, fruit of really all practice, all Buddhist practice, but especially this open awareness or awareness of awareness style that Andrea Fella teaches, that Sayadaw Bhutajaniya teaches. I've found in my own experience this particular form of practice to be incredibly supportive for both of these qualities in a more direct way than. Um, some of the other practices. So today I'll talk about 
wisdom and equanimity as ways of relating mostly to our mind states, some to sense contact too. And um, in both senses, they illustrate that the core of Buddhist practice is how we relate to experience. The core of Buddhist practice is how we relate to our experience. So I want to start out by um, just relaying a very short story. In the Jataka tales, sort of body of folk literature that surrounds um, stories of the Buddha's past lives before he became a Buddha, there is a story of an ascetic, the Buddha in a former life, whose lifelong practice, his whole um, life of practice was dedicated to seeking out discomfort and austerities. And I'm not going to list out all of them, but they're, they're awful, some of them, really, as bad as you can think of. And the story goes that right near the end of his life, he suddenly saw the error of what he was doing, that it wasn't leading anywhere good. And, you know, these years, these decades of practice weren't doing anything to improve his wisdom, his equanimity, his quality of mind, any of it. And it said that in that moment, his equanimity was so strong that wisdom, through wisdom, he just spontaneously grasped the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and was fully awakened, well, not fully awakened, but awakened shortly before his death because he was able to let go of these views, these beliefs, these fixed ways of thinking with equanimity. So these two qualities share a substantial overlap, as the story suggests. And it could be said that whenever one is present, a measure of the other one is present, or at least at least, at least a little bit, if not a lot. That Jataka tale, that story, is traditionally associated with equanimity, but I like it. It, because it shows this important link between the two qualities. It was the bodhisattva's ability to recognize his error and all this misspent effort with some equanimity. That was the important condition for the wisdom, the cutting through to arise. So it demonstrates how the two work together to cut through clinging, in this case, cutting through the views, clinging to views. And um, although they overlap, they work together, they are a little different, right? So there's a simple way to consider the difference, which I'll just unpack in this talk, which is to look at how each function in our minds, our hearts, our lives. So we'll start with wisdom. And wisdom, panya, is often also translated as discernment, which I really like. Discerning wisdom is another way to say it, which is this powerful function, this compass that provides an alternative to unconsciously basing our actions on what's most pleasant or expedient in this moment. Instead, uh, we, when we start to act out of wisdom, our minds and hearts become freer in the moment and freer to cultivate beneficial conditions for the future. Right? There's a little bit of distance. And this all sounds great. Yeah? But as the story about this aesthetic highlights, often Wisdom is cultivated by recognizing mistakes, sometimes really big mistakes, years-long mistakes, right? Hopefully, most of us won't put ourselves through a lifetime of austerity and self-denial, mistakenly. And this story recognizes and points to the power of recognizing mistakes large and small and coming to a place eventually of equanimity about them, whether it's suddenly, gradually, or over decades. It can take a while to wrestle with this kind of stuff. 
Mistakes or no, as Saida Utejaniya often points out, cultivating wisdom is usually a gradual process, really gradual process. Sati, awareness, mindfulness, gathers information over time and begins to see how things work. And one of the big ways in my own experience that's been helpful is to see the process of conditionality, what some teachers call or translators translate as cause and effect. So there's a general principle of conditionality that open awareness often and deeper practice can unfold into. And that is this general principle called Ida Pachayata, kind of a mouthful, Ida Pachayata, which translates as um, well, I like the way Tanis Ropiku calls it. It's not a direct translation, but it's this, that conditionality. This, that conditionality. And it's um, described as the Buddha gives this teaching many times. If this arises, that arises. If this ceases, that ceases. If this arises, then that arises. And if this ceases, that thesis. So very, very simple. But that recognition of this, that conditionality, we can see if this arises in the mind, oof, suffering. If this ceases in the mind, oh, the suffering ceases. And it applies. It can apply in many, many different ways. So recognizing this, this kind of Conditionality, especially through the lens of what is skillful and not skillful, wholesome and not wholesome, kusala, akusala, and Pali. That cultivates wisdom, and it's a function of wisdom. So I have just a simple example, and this is at the Taste Sense store. When I was younger, cheese was one of my very favorite foods, all kinds of it, especially the gourmet kinds, right? Um, And I loved it. Over time, I started developing joint pain. And we couldn't figure out what it was. And eventually, my my acupuncturist, doctor of acupuncture, said, you know, look at your diet. Look at your diet really closely. And sure enough, cheese was a big allergen. This was bad news for me at the time, right? And I did manage to give it up, and it was really hard at first. But, you know, the mistakes of lapsing and eating it and seeing the effects of it gradually conditioned the mind and the body. Oh, this leads to that, and that is suffering. And the mind let go. The mind actually let go, and it no longer... Did I look at a piece of cheese and like remember how it tasted and think how great it was? I looked at it and I saw suffering, right? Like, oh, there's the result. Instant association. So I'm sure each of you can think of something like this in your lives where eventually the effect of an action becomes more predominant than the pleasure of the action or the expediency of the action itself. That's how this works. It works with our qualities of mind as well, right? Thinking a certain way, really unpleasant. Might feel good in the moment, but really unpleasant mood later. And eventually the mind, don't need to go there. There's a letting go. So this is, as I said, a really important function of wisdom. And at the same time, it's also a cultivation of wisdom. It's like a little bit of wisdom cultivates more wisdom, which cultivates a little more, which cultivates a little more. And one of the most important conditions we can put into place as this process is happening is to pay attention to the wisdom, to actually act on it, or in my case, not acting on a certain thing, right? That helps it strengthen. All of this provides, as I've been kind of speaking to in different language, an alternate to what's called the hedonic treadmill. Hedonic treadmill. So hedonism, hedonic pleasure. 
and the pursuit of the hedonic treadmill, it's kind of a, even neurochemically, I learned recently from this um, scientist named Anna Limpke, like that kind of pursuit of pleasure leads biochemically and from a Buddhist perspective to always wanting, always wanting, it's never satisfying, takes more and more of a hit to satisfy. So a powerful benefit, as we explored the last two weeks I was here, of practicing awareness of the mind's responses to what comes in our sense doors, is that it provides this alternative. It provides wisdom as an input. And eventually wisdom is a compass for how we respond. What is seen clearly helps to nurture wisdom. Ignorance or wise inattention to what's happening in our minds with our mind states or in taste, smell, touch, sight, whatever, that conditions craving, desire, ill will, even addiction. Whereas wise attention, as I was saying, conditions further wisdom and equanimity. So notice the effects. Notice the effects of what's happening in your mind. Notice the impact. There's a certain kind of wisdom and intelligence. That's another um, translation of panya, the Pali that's often translated as discernment or wisdom is intelligence. You start to grasp the big picture, all of the causes and effects in play in a moment. Maybe not all of them, but the ones that are most germane, the ones that are most applicable. This is um, a teaching the Buddha often gave. This particular quote is from the Anguttara Nikaya, the numerical discourses. And I'll just name, I condensed it and adapted the pronouns, but it's Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation. A wise person of great wisdom does not intend for their own affliction for the affliction of others, or for the affliction of both. Rather, when they think, they think of their own welfare, the welfare of others, and the welfare of both, as well as the welfare of the whole world. So that's the intention. They intend for the welfare of themselves, other, both, and the world. It doesn't mean they don't reflect on possible harm or affliction. That's different. It just means they're not intending for it, right? So equanimity can be of great support to these kinds of intentions for benefit, to our human capacity to act wisely. And all of us are born with that possibility. Unless there's traumatic changes to the brain, dramatic changes to the brain. For birth. So equanimity, now shifting to that, offers this possibility of being unswayed, unmoved by our innate human, even animal, we share this with animal, preferences for the pleasant over the unpleasant in experience. Equanimity reduces, and in combination with wisdom, it can sometimes even eliminate cravings impact on our hearts, on our minds. There's, um, this can happen in very ordinary ways. It's the sense of all-inclusiveness and spaciousness and okayness. It can also happen in temporary seclusion, that deep, meditative stability offers, that can really support our orientation to equanimity. In the concentration states known as jhanas, there's a simile about the union of the mind with equanimity. It's like being suffused with a pure white light as if covered with a pure white cloth from head to toe, no part untouched. 
So this can be tasted in daily life in small ways. For example, you can just imagine, you can close your eyes if you want. Imagine having your eyes closed and you're outside basking in this pleasant, full, warm sunlight on a moderately cool day. Suffused with that warmth and it's like you can kind of see the light in your whole body as it suffuses through. There's a brightness in your eyes. And be like that. Sublime, calm, completely penetrating all of the body. In Buddhist meditation practice, equanimity like this is sometimes referred to as the crown jewel of mental factors and mind states. And that's perhaps because at its very deepest levels, equanimity is an expression of non-clinging, an expression of non-clinging, freedom from entanglement with mind states and with physical experiences and memories even. Sometimes equanimity the Pali term is um, used interchangeably with the term for dispassion. So in other words, at its very deepest levels, equanimity is an expression of wisdom as well as a support to it. This comes from a compilation of ancient poems from Buddhist nuns, Chinese Buddhist nuns in this case. It's the compilation is The Daughters of Emptiness. And this is by a woman named Ben Ming, also known as Mingxi. And we know very little about her other than that she was a Dharma heir of a Chan master, and you'll forgive my pronunciation, Wanwu Kiking. This is from 1063 to 1135. He lived, so this is a long time ago. He was so impressed with her poetry that he actually published them with some of his own teachings after she died. She writes, Don't you know that afflictions are nothing more than wisdom? But to cling to your afflictions is nothing more than foolishness. As they arise and melt away again, you must remember this. Don't you know that afflictions are nothing more than wisdom and the purest of blossoms emerges from the muck? If someone were to come and ask me what I do, after eating my meal, I wash my bowl. Don't worry about a thing. Don't worry about a thing. In other words, that not worrying is part, that equanimity is part of seeing what's happening in mind with wisdom. And it can be the differentiating factor from being incredibly reactive and spinning out overseeing something we don't like in, in, in ourselves and gaining wisdom from it. In meditation, equanimity helps wisdom to be experienced as receptive and settled back the way Ben Ming describes. Wisdom sees the matrix, the ecology, the conditions Idapachayata, the general conditions that have contributed to how things come to be the way they are. If this arises, that arises. If this ceases, that ceases. In this tradition, the earlier tradition of the way of the elders, the Theravada, Indian Buddhism, wisdom is often associated with direct insight into the three characteristics of subjective experience, inconstancy and change, or anicca, 
the dropping away of an imputed sense of self or control on fluctuating conditions, otherwise known as anatta, and the dissatisfaction, the suffering, dukkha, that results from clinging to subjective experience. As Ajahn Chah, a teacher in the Thai forest tradition, says, suffering is rope burn. It's suffering from holding on too tight to something that's moving very fast. Or even very slowly. Another important lens on wisdom that Sayadaw Tejaniya focuses on is often a result of insight into these three characteristics of subjective experience. And that is a direct seeing into greed, hatred, and delusion, and their conditioning power. And as this lovely, wonderful Chan Nun, Ben Ming, talks about seeing the poisons, as she calls them, the afflictions, with wisdom and equanimity, cultivates their opposites, cultivate wisdom and liberative capacity. Don't worry about a thing. Don't believe it and act on it either. Right? So equanimity can be experienced as a sense of spaciousness, perspective, steadiness, ballast, in relationship to the three characteristics, in relationship to the vicissitudes of life. And it can also help us recognize that seeing the bad news of greed, hatred, and delusion is actually good news. It's seen. We have the chance not to be hooked by it. And putting a little bit of energy, another parami, and another quality of mind, into attending to the wisdom rather than attending to the seduction of whatever the mind is wanting to pull into, that's um, that's a huge cultivation along the path. Ajahn Suchito says, equanimity is inclusion, not indifference. Equanimity is inclusion, not indifference. So it's not indifference to greed or hatred or delusion. It's not indifference to the suffering, my own or others. But it's an inclusion of the recognition of what's happening and having some ballast, some space, some ability to hold it all. Equanimity serves as a buffer. There's a simile in the suttas of drops of water falling off a lotus leaf. It is shed off of it. The leaf doesn't even look wet. Or you can think of the prow of a boat moving through water, undeterred. It's like that. Things shed off of us more easily. Wisdom and equanimity also share a quality of healthy decenteredness, this lack of a certain kind of distortion that comes from overly identifying with the situation. So this doesn't mean we need to ignore or should ignore our own innate wishes, basic needs. Those are important information. To ignore those is yet another distortion. The near enemy of equanimity is indifference, right? The near enemy of wisdom is ignorance, right? And the verb ignoring, not a good idea. Instead, wisdom involves seeing our own needs and wishes and projections, and rather than unknowingly allowing them to be the center of some unseen process or agenda, we see the degree to which what's arising in our minds distort what actually is. In my own experience, 
To really see this involves a measure of equanimity too. Otherwise, I'm too reactive to see it. So, because wisdom and equanimity all often manifest as receptive and integrate this bigger picture, some people do think that abiding in them means not caring or inaction. And as I've been saying, that's not true. Equanimity and wisdom can both be powerful support to wise and compassionate action in the world and in our own lives. The presence of each of them offers this kind of healthy distance from the mental caffeine of anger or overzealousness or the relational toxicity of righteousness. And even the slow freeze of denial. We can look at the big picture instead, a longer time horizon, or have a little space, like that ascetic did near the end of his life, to be released from the need that our actions have had a particular outcome, frees us up to different actions that will have a different outcome, internally or externally. And this offers this freedom to act spontaneously, lovingly, even vigorously with non-attachment. It becomes easier to plant beneficial seeds in the mind and in our lives and our communities because in my own experience, the heart can be nourished by taking joy in the simple act of wise and skillful action itself. So those are my thoughts. And um, maybe we'll sit with them for just a moment and then we'll invite questions. So just let the words settle in your heart and mind. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm going to pause the recording so that we can just talk openly. Just deep appreciation, deep bows for the sincerity of your practice. You're doing something very beautiful here. Please trust it. Please trust it. May all beings benefit from our practice here together. May any wisdom, equanimity, joy, may any benefits that we've experienced today and through our practice together ripple out through our lives and the lives that we touch and the lives that they touch. May all beings be free of suffering. May all beings know the highest joy of liberation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, John. Thank you, everyone. That was great, John. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Just wonderful. Thank you. Will you be here next week, Don? I will be here in a couple weeks. Oh, okay. Mario Line Johnson is here next week, I think. All right. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye.